So please turn with me to, not Mark, but Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. That is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. Uh, as you're turning there, I, I don't know about you, but radio fascinates me. The, the idea that there's actually, we can't see it, but there are all of these waves, radio waves, flying through the air right now. If we were, had goggles that would help us to see this, it would just look like chaos, right? All of these signals flying around. If we heard them all at once, it would be overwhelming. But if you get the right frequency, it's like you pull one of those signals out of the air and suddenly you're listening to a beautiful symphony. It's a good analogy for the world today, even as Cody was mentioning. There's so many voices and so many, so many opinions speaking, saying this is what your life is for. This is how you should live, or you should go this way, that way. We're inundated with it. So it's always refreshing to tune into the Bible's gospel frequency. And there, there are just some passages in Scripture that just ring with such clarity that it, that it just cuts through the noise of the world. Passages such as Romans eleven thirty six from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. God will be glorified. This is a certainty. All things work to his glory. All creation is headed this way. We see it in Revelation five thirteen. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All creation giving glory to God, praising him from their joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is why our mission statement at DGCC is is this. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all people. It's to lean into this reality. This is where all creation is going. This is who God is. This is why we exist. This is our gospel purpose. The world is chasing after joy in life in all the wrong places when God is the fountain of joy in life. So what are some other gospel frequencies? Well, how about Deuteronomy 6.5? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. We were made to love God. We were made and created to be in loving relationship with God. Jesus says this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Another gospel frequency for us, love your neighbor as yourself. Others like it, John four twenty three. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We were made to love and worship God. This is who we are created to be. Other gospel frequencies, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has predestined you, he's predestined me and Christ to be conformed into the image of the son. How will all this come about? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The spreading of the gospel of Jesus 
by the church, local and global. This is how this glory, this worship, this love, this conformity to the Son, this is how it's going to happen. In short, when we tune in to the gospel frequency of Scripture, we see this. Putting it all together. God will be glorified through his redeemed people who treasure and worship and enjoy him above all else, who are conformed into the image of his son, Jesus, through their worship, disciple-making, spreading of the gospel in the context of the gospel-born, gospel-driven local church. Now that is a mouthful. But this is the reality that our vision team, over the last several months, sought to capture in a, in a vision statement. And you have it in front of you on your bulletin. You see it's, it's a new bulletin look, so uh, you can look at that if you want. And so we, through discerning together, through God bringing us together in unity and a lot of prayer, we settled on what we felt God was leading us to, and it's our vision or our gospel pursuit. We glorify God by joyfully treasuring Christ, and prayerfully pursuing Christ's likeness in the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you can't tell, this is where we're going this morning. We're, we're reflecting and looking and, and, and considering what the vision, we as a vision team, and we've shared it in the members meeting, where we feel like God is leading us as a local church, who to be in light of our mission in this next season of our church. So we... We sought to answer what we do in light of our mission. If we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God, then what do we do? That's what our vision statement hopes to answer, what we sought to answer with it. As you can see through going through those passages of Scripture, it's, it's nothing novel. It's, it's not new. We're not attaching to, uh, trying to attach to a fad or a trend. It's the time tested, tried and true ancient wisdom of God. More specifically, it's an ancient vision for the Christian church born out of a prayer from the Apostle Paul that we find in Ephesians three fourteen through 21. This became a foundational verse for us. And, and this passage addresses common thoughts and questions that we often have as Christians. Thoughts like, I wish I loved God more. Why do I not love Christ as I should? Do I really love him as I ought? How do I grow in my faith? I feel stuck. How do I, how do I grow in my love for Christ, in my conformity to who he is? How do I move forward in this faith? Our passage and our vision gets at some of these questions in a beautiful way. So look with me at Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
So as we look at this passage, first we will take things out of order. First, we will consider the nature and purpose of this passage by looking at verses 14 through 15 and verses 20 through 21. And what we will see in verses 14 through 15, that the nature of this passage is that it is a gospel-driven prayer. And then in verses 20 through 21, we will see that its purpose is for God's glory. And then we will consider the, the, the heart of this passage, two separate requests that Paul prays. First, in verses 16 through 17, we'll see his first request, Holy Spirit power to make a heart that treasures Christ. Essentially, he's praying in request one that we would treasure Christ. It's request one. His second request in the second half of verse 17 through 19 is this, strength to know God's unfathomable love in order to conform us to the image of Christ. So his second request is that these Ephesians would grow in Christ-likeness. The main idea, amongst other things, that we want to answer and we want to focus on is what Cody brought up this morning. What is the key to my growth, my maturity as a Christian? What is the key to my treasuring Jesus more and growing more in Christ-likeness? It fits with the scheme of all the law and the prophets that Jesus says everything hangs on love of God and love of neighbor. How do I grow in treasuring Jesus more and grow in my Christ-likeness? But first, let's consider the nature and purpose of this passage very quickly. We read this in verse 14, for this, is, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. So what is, what's Paul doing here? Paul is praying. He, he, he is praying for the Ephesians. He says, this, this is me praying for you. I'm coming before the creator of all the universe from whom every family on he, in heaven and on earth is named. The one who redeemed you, who gave you a new name, who made you his people, his family. This is who I'm going to in prayer right now on your behalf. That's what Paul's doing. So we already see in it, we can already make see Paul's assumption here. Paul's assuming you may be God's people, but you need something that only God can give. why, Why is Paul praying? Well, our passage begins with these words, for this reason. What's the reason? Everything that just came before. Everything that just came before, Paul just got through heralding the gospel in one of the densest, richest parts of Scripture we have. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And it goes on. It's hard to know where to stop reading because... As you might know in the original Greek, a lot of this is just one big sentence. Paul just heralding the love of God in Christ over and over again. Because of this, for this reason, because God has saved you, I am praying this for you now, that you live more in light of this reality. It's a gospel-driven prayer. It has a purpose, an ultimate purpose in mind. Verses 20 through 21. 
Now to him who, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what's the ultimate purpose and name of this prayer? Glory. God's glory. Glory in Christ Jesus. Glory in the church. Glory to him forever and ever from generation to generation. God's glory. That is Paul's ultimate purpose here in this prayer. We might say, wait, wait. So everything Paul is actually praying for the Ephesians isn't so much about the Ephesians as much as it is about God's glory? Does that, does that offend us a little bit? Like, Paul is, is actually, does he really care for them that much? He's just praying about God's glory. Well, it's, it's yes and no. It's, a, it's about both, right? Because as we've just seen in our mission statement, as, as God is glorified, joy in his people increases. So praying for God's glory is the best thing he can be praying for these Ephesians. God desires to share his glory and joy and life. He has no need of help for us in this regard, but invites us into that. He is the source of joy and life, and he invites us into that joy and life and into his glory. It's the great purpose of the human life, to enjoy God and glorify him. So, then it, uh, this should be the desire and vision and pursuit of every Christian. Glorifying God, enjoying him. This is why our vision statement begins with, we glorify God. This is why our gospel pursuit is, we glorify God. We are fully dependent upon God, though, to do this through us. Prayer. That's what Paul's praying, we see. So we see that We've also included prayerful language in our vision statement because we do everything for God's glory, wanting to fit with that, but we also are completely dependent upon God in prayer to do this. So this is a prayer aimed at the glory of God. Well, let's now consider Paul's requests to that end. What does he actually pray? If, if this is the big idea that Paul is praying and going after, the glory of God, what is it he prays for the Ephesians so that this happens? Seems important, right? Look at uh, verses 16 and 17. We see Paul's first request, Holy Spirit power to create a heart that treasures Christ. He prays that the Ephesians would treasure Christ. There's two parts to this request. First, there is the initial request in verse 16, Holy Spirit power. And then there's the purpose of that request in verse 17, Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith. So let's consider his initial request, Holy Spirit power. Paul's prayer then makes an assumption. What's that assumption? That though these Ephesians are in Christ... They are still weak and in need of more power from the Holy Spirit. We say, wait, 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 wait. I thought Christ, at my conversion, at my conversion, I was sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit. I have him. This is what makes me a Christian. Why, why more? Well, th- this is true. This is what makes us who we are. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And think, of, think of the disciples we've been looking at in Mark, how 
out of step they are with Christ all throughout the Gospel of Mark. But then we see this huge change when the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, suddenly they're emboldened believers, no longer fearful, proclaiming the gospel, demonstrating Christ completely different. The Holy Spirit. But even then, what we see in Acts is that they get together and do what? Pray for more. God, we need more boldness. And the Holy Spirit filled the place they were in and it was shaken. Christian maturity does not look like greater and greater independence from God. We may raise our children to one day be independent of us, right? But in, in, in the faith, in Christian maturity, the greater, greater Christian maturity looks more like dependence upon God. We're driven more and more to our knees ever before him saying, I need more Power. I need your Holy Spirit. That's the source of the power, the Holy Spirit, God Himself. Paul says this much according to the riches of His glory. It's inexhaustible. You'll never tap it out. We come to it over and over again. I was recently talking to a Duke Energy employee in my neighborhood, and he was telling us about the power outages that so often happen in our neighborhood. And he said the reason is because, because this neighborhood was not, uh, the power grid was not made for this neighborhood to have such big houses that were all of a sudden being built. And the population growing, more houses being built, bigger houses, more power is being used. He said around these people in smaller houses were finding that around 5 o'clock when they would get home, all of a sudden their power would dim because everybody's coming home from work. And turning on their lights and everything at the same time. This would never happen. Unlimited, inexhaustible power from the God of the universe himself. This is what the Holy Spirit is giving to us. Inexhaustible. What's the purpose? Why is Paul praying for such a profound reality? We were just talking about an adult course seminar that God himself by his Holy Spirit would come and fill us. It's for this purpose, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Does that sound weird? We say, wait, wait. These are Ephesian Christians. Christians. We are Christians. Isn't Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith? Right now, that's what makes me a Christian. What is Paul talking about? Well, the word, word dwell helps us here. It conveys this idea of permanent residence, making a place a home. Jesus would not come into your heart and simply spend one night on the pull-out couch and be gone before you wake up the next day, like, oh, somebody here is sleeping. Okay. No, Jesus would come in and have all of who you are. Just as he has the throne in the heaven, Lord, let, let your kingdom come on earth and your will be done. Let it come on my heart. Let your kingdom come in my heart. Christ reigning on the throne of my heart. This, this gets at a, uh, the age-old problem of of humans, right? 
Sinful man is too weak. It's the age-old problem of Adam. Our, our desires are too weak. We are too easily satisfied with cheap sins, thrills, and idols, and weak pleasures, rather than looking past those things to see the beauty of what God offers us in himself, we store up in our house all of these, the house of our heart, all of these idols and pleasures that are nothing compared to him. We're like a child who would, would reject a, a rich five-course meal with a perfectly cooked steak as the main course and pick saltine crackers. Evie always picks the saltine crackers, but this is what we do. But Christ would have our whole hearts. D.A. Carson likens the human heart that comes to faith in Jesus to a fixer-upper house that needs renovated. He notes, when Christ, by his spirit, takes up residence within us, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, black and silver wallpaper, and a leaking roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home in which he is comfortable. There will be a lot of cleaning to do, quite a few repairs, and some much-needed expansion, but his aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our heart as we exercise faith in him. Why would someone let Jesus come into their hearts and begin demo work on all their most treasured possessions, even the dark rooms where we've sequestered away all of our our most precious sins that we hate but we love? And why would someone join in the process with Jesus who invites us into the process as he, we let him in the house? He invites us, hey, take the sledgehammer, help me out. Why would we do this? Because we believe that in Jesus there is something far greater than anything the world would have to offer. The greatest treasure, Christ himself, taking up residence in our hearts. We treasure Christ above all. That's what dwelling in our hearts looks like because we treasure him and actively exercise our faith in him in that way. This is what Paul prays for. He prays that the Holy Spirit would give the Ephesians power so that they would treasure Christ more. And as we treasure him more, we start to look like him more. This leads to Paul's second request. Look at the second half of verses 17, the second half of verse 17 through 19. Prayer request number two, strength to know the unfathomable love of God in order to conform us into the image of Christ. He prays here that the Ephesians would grow in Christ's likeness. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So again, we'll look at this passage in two parts, or this request in two parts. We see the initial request, verses 18 through 19, to know God's love for us. That's what Paul is praying. That's the initial request. And it's for a purpose. The purpose of that request is to grow in Christ-likeness. End of verse 19. But first, Paul makes a little detour to remind the Ephesians who they are, which reminds us of who we are. Our identity is forged in love. 
So Paul says in verse, the second half of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Such a simple phrase with a lot in there. Paul makes this observation that you have already been rooted, you have already been grounded in love. This is who you are. This is your identity. So let's keep that in mind. See that God, in his love, predestined us for adoption as sons. Let's keep it in mind as Paul goes then to make his request that they would know the reality of who they are. It's, it's kind of like parents always say, I remember my parents growing up always saying to me, you'll never quite understand how much we actually love you. Ever, anybody ever have a parent say that to them? That's what Paul is saying here. You'll never quite actually understand, but I'm praying that you will, how much God actually loves you, even though you're rooted and grounded in it. So let's see his request. Paul prays that they would have the strength to first comprehend and second, to know, comprehend in verse 18, to know in verse 19. It's not, it's not exactly the same thing here. Paul isn't saying exactly the same thing. First, consider comprehend. It, it conveys this idea of, of grasping, getting a hold of something, uh, being familiar with it, making it your own. It's, it's this idea of, it, of an experiential knowledge of God's love that forms your faith. Does Does the idea of experience informing and shaping our faith kind of make our kind of our reformed uh, tendencies make us a little bit suspicious sometimes? Carson notes notes this because some wings of the church have appealed to experience over against revelation or have talked glibly about an ill-defined spirituality that is fundamentally divorced from the gospel, some of us have overreacted and begun to view all mention of experience as suspicious at best and perverse at worst. This overreaction must cease. The scripture themselves demand that we allow more place for experience than that. That's what this grasping and comprehending of God's love is. It's personal. It's a personal, experiential knowledge of who he is. That is what Paul is praying for, that you would feel it. That you would know with your heart, with your guts, that you could look back at moments in your life and see that that's where God did something. These are real. Cody talks, talks about them as tokens of God's love. And they can be simple, and they can be profound. I remember once... Uh, with one of my friends growing up in high school, someone I was always trying to, even in my own immaturity, in some way show Christ to him, and, and I, I loved him deeply, and, and, uh, and he was open about not trusting Christ, and, and just trying to, how can I share my faith with him and show, show him more of who God is? And this is such a, a simple little example, but one day we were at a football scrimmage, right? We were, he was a great football player, and we were at a football scrimmage in small town, and so it's all about football, right? And, uh, well, that same night, he had a four-wheeler race that he had to get to. He raced four-wheelers, and he was super anxious and concerned. I'm going to have to leave this scrimmage early. That's going to be a really bad look because I need to make it to this four-wheeler race. And he was distraught because he didn't want to do that to the team. He was like, what are the coaches going to think of me? But he was kind of committed to both, right? And, And so he came to me highly unusual. And he goes, Jacob, 
would you pray that God would put me in the very last heat, <laughs> the very last heat of this four-wheeler race? I said, okay, let's do it. Once we said amen, his dad came over and said, you're in the last heat. And he just looked at me and thought, <laughs> and what did that do for him? I, you know, I hope and, and, and know from past conversations, it increased his knowledge, Lord, get, you know, of, of his love for him. But it also increased my knowledge of God's love for me, that in that moment he would, he would give us that token. It, it's something that we experience as we walk with him. But it's also knowledge of understanding as well. Hand in hand, together, Christians are familiar with God. They are the friend of God, head and heart, intellect and feeling. It is a complete, fully-orbed, personal knowledge of who God is in Christ. That is what Paul is praying for here. And we ask the same question that we asked of the first request. What does Paul's prayer assume here? The fact that Paul is praying for us to know God's love more, just as he prayed for us to have more Holy Spirit power, reveals that Paul assumes that we do not fully grasp, recognize, or appreciate how much God actually loves us, how much he actually loves you, until we are convinced of this in our own hearts that I don't fully understand, you don't fully understand how much it is God loves you. then we, are, we will be stuck in our growth in this faith. Even though our identity is rooted and grounded in the love of the Father, forged in love, we need more knowledge of his love for us. So Paul prays that they would have the strength to grasp it for this purpose, that these Ephesians would know more fully God's love for them so that, verse 19 you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This fullness of God here is Paul's way of describing Christian maturity. He uses, uses the, the phrase fullness of Christ elsewhere, but it's, it's, it's mature belief, not being swayed by watered-down uh, teachings and false teachings. It's mature conduct, not giving yourself to sin and not passively embracing sin. It's it's mature unity, being unified with the saints in love, bearing one another's burdens, confessing to one another, seeking one another's help and counsel. It's wrapped up in this phrase, the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, Christ Christ-likeness. So Paul prays that the Ephesians would continue to grow in Christ-likeness. And that the knowledge of God's love would lead them to God's love would lead them to that. And if you ask most of us what we think the biggest reason or hindrance is for our growth in the faith, I know I would be tempted to, to attribute it this besetting sin. If I could just get rid of this one thing, or or if this trial that I am currently experiencing, if it was just gone, or yeah, this past. This past experience in my life or past trauma, this isn't to minimize any of these things. But what Paul is saying here, those things are not what is actually keeping us from growing in Christ's likeness. 
What's keeping us is not recognizing how much God loves us in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done. This knowledge of God's love and the lack of it is what keeps us from growing in Christ's likeness. Like on the opposite end, to say it positively, knowledge of God's love is what will fuel our growth in Christ's likeness. I don't know if you've ever, I, I know some of you have for sure, uh, uh, worked with plants, garden, those kind of things. But, you know, potted plants, we used to, I used to have a business with some buddies where we sold these plants. And it was just a pop-up lot on a uh, parking lot, seasonal. And what, what, what do you think happened if we didn't move product, if these flowers sat on the lot for too long? People would start coming by and saying, you're charging 99 cents for that? Look at that thing. And what we would always say is like, just get it in the ground and it's going to be perfectly fine. Because these plants are not made to sit in a pot. What happens? It gets root bound, right? And you have to break that pot, get it in the ground, and it's flourishing. It'll only grow so much in that pot. So often, We have been rooted and grounded in the love of God. And so often we are resistant to that love. The love through others, love through the gospel of Jesus. And we, in a sense, close ourselves up in a pot where we're never made to be in. And we will only grow so much. We have to break that pot, find ourselves planted in the infinite soil of God's love for us. That's what Paul is saying here. And where do we go? Where do we go to see this love? How do, we, how do we know more of this love? Well, Paul says as much. It is the love of Christ. The gospel is the love and power of God to save. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Say, so where's an example of the type of faith that thrived on the knowledge of God's love for them? Well, we just read a narrative today of Abraham, one who is so often held up as, 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 a, as a model for faith in God. And, and it's always confusing when you go back and even read something. And it's like, I can see a lot of areas where Abraham didn't look so faithful, right? And, but... but But what is it about Abraham that he is someone we point to as a model for this faith? Why would Abraham be willing to sacrifice his own son, whom he loved, his only son whom he loved? What would move him to do such a thing? Because Stephen says in Acts that God appeared to him in glory disrupted his life. Here is a polytheistic idol worshiper going about his own business and the God of the universe steps into his life and says, go. I will bless you and you will be a blessing and I will give you an offspring. And Abraham believed God. For no other reason. He didn't have some narrative to tell him otherwise. 
He had no law of God to look to, had not been given yet. He had the convincing persuasion of the God of the universe's self and his beauty and glory stepping into his life, giving him a picture of who he is and making promises that were better than anything the world had to offer. And so when it came time to offer his son, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham even knew that God could raise him from the dead if he had to. Abraham banked on God's covenant love for him and the promise that he had made to give him an offspring and knew and trusted in God in spite of what was called. It was the love of God. He feared only God, nothing else, because God had invited him into a perfect perfect covenant love. And when Abraham, we know the rest of the story, went to offer Isaac, God said, stop, wait. Don't put a hand on the boy. And God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac. And Abraham got a picture, even more than he had before, of what God's love looks like. It says this, Your, God's love for you is, is, is not that I would just give you a ram to die for Isaac. I provide a substitute and a sacrifice to die instead of him. And, and the book of Hebrews tells us that, or uh, yeah, book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham greeted from afar the promises of God. And, 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 and Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day on the horizon. Abraham was believing in gospel promises that God would provide and fulfill what he promised through his offspring. Well, what Abraham saw in part, John the Baptist saw in full. When he saw Jesus walking by, he tells us, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is where we look to see the love of God. We look to Christ so we can see in Paul's prayer, it's a gospel prayer, and this is how we applied it as a vision team, that our identity, our mission is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God and all things for the joy of all people. And, and, and so to do this, we said, well, we glorify God, and we do that in two ways, by treasuring Christ and growing in Christ-likeness for God's glory. And we can only do this actively depending on the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God's love. That's the only way this can happen. We glorify God by joyfully treasuring Christ and prayerfully pursuing Christ's likeness and the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so we have our mission, our gospel purpose, and we have our vision, our gospel pursuit, but we also ask the question of how. How are we going to go about doing this? How do we treasure Christ and pursue Christ's likeness to God's glory? This leads to the second part of our application, our gospel practice. Paul says to the Ephesians that this isn't just done in isolation. This is done in community. Verse 18, together with all the saints. It's the natural place for us to grow in our faith. 
The knowledge of God is the local church. Beholding Jesus together, the picture of God's love. Again, in answering how we do this, we didn't, as a vision team, seek anything novel. We, we, we wanted to, to do what the church has always done from the beginning. So, so we said the three dimensions of church life, we, we in our worship... We love God. We see Jesus in our corporate worship. We share Jesus with one another in in our discipleship of one another, in our fellowship. And we show Jesus to those on the outside. This is how you see God's love, is God's love in Christ. This is what the early church has done from the beginning, isn't it? Think of Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. How did God use these new believers in the early church to bring about a revolution that changed the world? They devoted themselves to seeing God in the scriptures. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to seeing Christ. That's what we do They devoted themselves to sharing Jesus with one another in fellowship. And what inevitably happens, what inevitably happens is people see Christ in us. They show Christ and people are in awe of who God is in his people. So we see Jesus together as a family in our Corporate worship. That's what we've been doing this morning, isn't it? We've been praising God, opening the word, seeking as a family together to see Jesus. We all were Abraham, called out unexpectedly in our idol worship. We all were Isaac, who should have died instead of the sacrifice. This is what unites us and binds us. This reality of who Christ is makes us a family. And so we seek to see Jesus together as a family. We also share Jesus with one another as his disciples. We've all been given various gifts. Our discipling one another through our, through our Christian education, our Sunday schools, our adult course seminar, our fellowship after service is, is one of the ways it's most clearly seen. And so many people who come in here say that they have seen that. Listening and praying with one another after service. We're sharing Jesus with one another as his disciples. Perhaps the most, the freshest example is thinking of this past uh, weekend, 20-year anniversary celebration as people were testifying to God's faithfulness. I saw Jesus there, and I know others did. Sharing Jesus with one another. The Hesters are currently doing this right now in Turkey. We should be praying for them in that regard. With Matthew and Kaylee. Showing Jesus to all peoples. Third, as his witnesses in our neighborhood, in Charlotte, and in the world. We've seen this most recently in our neighborhood outreach. As we've gone door to door, knowing that God has providentially placed DGCC here and providentially placed people around her. We are showing Christ to others. In our missions, think of Paul Chintata being here recently and the work he is doing. We support it globally. 
in our church planting that we that is a part of our DNA that God willing will let us be involved in even more one day, and not to mention the various outreach activities with refugees. I think of the, the Kaminishes and working with Afghan refugees, and there, there's going to be more ways we can hope to lean into that. This is showing Christ, demonstrating who he is, and declaring who he is to all peoples. So we, we find that we're doing these things now, but we want to continue to do them and grow in them more and more. That we would more and more see Christ together. That we would that we would share Jesus with one another and show Jesus with all people so that we are conformed into his image and treasure Christ more in our participation in what God has called us to do. So this is, this is who we are. We glorify God by joyfully treasuring Christ and prayerfully pursuing Christ-likeness in the love of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do this by seeing Jesus together as a family, by sharing Jesus with one another as his disciples, and by showing Jesus to all peoples as his witnesses in our neighborhood, in Charlotte, and in the world. And in a moment, we are going to to be able to come to this table where we see Jesus represented in the bread and the cup. And we share as a family and as disciples this great gospel reality that we have fellowship with one another, fellowship with the God of the universe through Christ. So these elements are before us. We look at them, see them, look at them. In them, we see the body and the blood of Christ. We are seeing his love for us, the Father's love for us in these elements right here. And so as we come in a moment to to not only see them, but to touch them and to taste of them and to even hear them. I don't know if you've noticed, you can hear the crunching, right? All of these tangible Evidences are gifts God gives to us to point us to the great reality that in the body and the blood of Christ, we are brought into fellowship with him. And that one day, he will return and feast with us at table. This is who we are. We see and we share and we show Jesus as a family, as disciples, and as witnesses. So would you pray with me, and then we will move to the Lord's Supper together.